St. Benedict Forum was founded by Catholic scholars at Hope College to do three main things. To promote and nurture intellectual work done from the heart of the Catholic Church. To foster an ecumenical community of Catholics and other Christians committed to the renewal of culture. And to aid in the formation of intellectually and spiritually mature Christians by making available the riches of the Catholic tradition to Hope College and the wider community. We are very glad to have Coney here, who will accomplish all three of these in one month. <laughs> <laughs> I'll leave this up for you. We're also very grateful for our co-sponsors, and without them, we really could not do uh, the work that we do. Um, Campus Ministries, as part of Father McConey's visit, counseling and psychological services, a new partner of ours, the psychology department as well, the religion department, uh, Old Faithful, and the philosophy department. <laughs> Father McConey is a priest in the Society of Jesus, also known as the Jesuits. He teaches in the Department of Theological Studies at St. Louis University, and is also the editor of Homiletic and Pastoral Review. He holds uh, a number of degrees. Um, but anyway, he holds a pontifical license in Petrology from the University of Innsbruck, a DPhil in Ecclesiastical History from Oxford University, and he also got his start here at Hope College, where he received his BA uh, in, of all things, economics. And we were just studying minor. That's right, a minor in religion. So anyway, all of you econ majors, if you're thinking of career change, it's not too late. <laughs> <laughs> Among his recent publications are the Annotated Confessions of St. Augustine, Padapa Ignatius Press, a lovely volume with some very excellent essays in the back. Um, is a new book on the past. a very lovely book, um, The One Christ, St. Augustine's Theology of Deification, just came out. We've got the University Press, a very important book. Um, which will form some of the background of the talk today, and also the co-editor of the Cambridge Companion to Augustine. Father McGoney is a gentleman and a scholar who's a very fine teacher and a good friend. Please join me in welcoming Father McGoney. So here's the plan. We'll talk for maybe, I'll talk for maybe 45 minutes. I need to read this paper because it's relatively new. Uh, I have a PowerPoint to keep you relatively interested, <laughs> and then we'll have questions and answers, and we'll... Uh... Basically, the question is this. Why is it we do things that we know are going to destroy ourselves, but we continue to embrace them anyway? Okay? This thought came to me throughout the years a few times. One, while watching Fight Club. Uh, there's a great scene in there which, if you know the storyline, it's men who are bored with their suburban life, so they come together once a week and fight, and the one rule is you're not allowed to hit in the face because you'll take the bruises back to the office. And there's a scene where Brad Pitt just goes loose on a guy, and when he gets up, he looks in the camera, and they say, why'd you do that? And he says, sometimes you just feel like destroying something beautiful. Now, I was really convicted at that moment. That's my own sinfulness. I do these things to keep God's perfection away. And then a few Ash Wednesdays ago, uh, I was walking through the Jesuit house, and someone, see, I'm going to blame somebody else, forgot to put the M&Ms away. And I went, and I took an M&M, and I thought, oh, it's Ash Wednesday. So my first thought was, well, I'm going to go get some ice cream. 
I already blew it for today. <laughs> so, working with Augustine, he thinks through these things better than most people, and so this is an attempt to try to put some conceptual weight on these experiences of mind. Deep within every lovesick heart lies the embrace of one's own ruin. An abused child who finds more security in her father's demeaning words than in the admiring smile of a stranger. The cutter whose scars comfort in the slicing reminder that life still floats, flows under the surface. Addicts who assure themselves that the numbing familiarity they seek is surely this time just one fixed puff, binge, or pornographic image away. While today's diagnostic manuals scramble to stay current with such behavior, St. Augustine captured part of this phenomenon over a millennium and a half ago. For Augustine of Hippo was never content to remain a relic of the past. This afternoon, let us look at one aspect of Augustine's story, his enigmatic love with his own destruction. When quiet and honest with ourselves, I believe each here can relate to how, if not daily, repeatedly, we allow ourselves to be deluded into thinking this or that familiar action will finally bring us joy. And when it fails, we continue to look at it longingly, just waiting for the next time we can cozy up to whatever is available in the refrigerator, <coughs> go shopping, or embrace that uncomfortable habit. The argument I hope to lay out over the next 45 minutes is that Augustine understands the essence of sin to be a freely chosen autonomy and alienation, resulting in the loathing and destruction of self. That sin, not just a particular sin, but sin itself, the meta-narrative of sin, is when I distance myself from community. In other words, we remove ourselves, we sin when we remove ourselves from interpersonal communion and inevitably establish ourselves as our own sovereigns. For Augustine, sin produces internal fragmentation, and as we shall see, the divided will rebels against itself. Intent not only on distance from the good, but the destruction of any good that demands my allegiance. To show how this function in Augustine's thinking, there are four parts to the talk. There are four parts to the talk. There are four parts. What do I hate myself? I can't work. <laughs> the pear tree scene is archetypal. A sin as false deification of making self your own god. An interiorization and destruction of that God, and then the relationship as remedy. So let us first look at the exam, the uh, notorious pear tree scene early on in the Confessions. Three points here, the first part. I studied in the German system, so this is point one three A. Why this theft bothers Augustine so badly so many years later? Why he can provide no real efficient cause or reason to why he stole the pears. And the singular motivation he does give is the enigma of self-loathing, how he desired only to embrace his own decay. Here's the scene. Close to our vineyard, there was a pear tree laden with fruit. This fruit was not enticing either in appearance or in flavor. But we nasty lads went there to shake down the fruit and carry it off at dead of night. We took enormous quantities, not to feast on ourselves, but perhaps to throw to the pigs. We did eat a few, but that was not our motive. We derived pleasure from the deed simply because it was forbidden. Look upon my heart, O oh God. Look upon this heart of mine, at which you took pity in its abysmal depths. Enable my heart to tell you now what it was seeking in this action, which made me bad for no reason, 
in which there was no motive for my malice except malice. The malice was loathsome and I loved it. I was in love with my own ruin, in love with the decay, not with the thing for which I was falling into decay, <coughs> but with decay itself. For I was depraved in soul and I let down your strong support into destruction, hungering not for some advantage to be gained by the foul deed, but for the foulness of it. Looking back over the whole of his life, Augustine chooses this scene from his 16th year to show us the powerful allure of decay. If this were just the puerile shenanigans of some bored youths, a carousing evening costing some local farmers a few measly pieces of produce, our author surely would not have given it another moment's thought. But it is still raw 20 years later in Augustine's memory. Why so? To begin, notice how Augustine does not immediately provide a simple motive for this relatively innocuous action. He first canvasses three not explanations, but outcomes of this act. <clears throat> Some of the pears he did admit he threw to the pigs. Some were consumed, for we did eat a few. And he admits that probably he would not have done this if he were alone which is the first example of what I call pear pressure. <laughs> Thank you, I was worried. <laughs> but none of these stand up to Augustine's thinking. No, one of these consequences of stealing satisfies as the cause of the theft, because unlike other corrupt actions, the fruit was taken for no real reason or apparent advantage to the criminal. That is why Augustine next in the Confessions introduces malfeasances with which the just person may disagree, but which are at least intelligible because there's some good sought. He uses the sake of homicide for taking another man's wife. The conspirator Catiline, who attempted to throw the Roman Republic in order to secure his own political power. But this act was different. For although the object of his theft, a few pairs, may be enormously less than the life of a man or the welfare of a state, this action continues to gnaw at Augustine's psyche. It is not the matter, but the motive. For Augustine derived pleasure from the deed. He came to find himself because it was forbidden, and he came to find himself bad for no reason. Augustine here reaches the periphery of autonomy. He finds himself above any restriction or commitment. And here he fell in love. He fell in love not with another, but as he declares, I was, in, I was in love with my own ruin, in love with the decay. And whereas every lover is famished, Augustine admits the same sense of craving, but not for a beloved, but simply hungry for the foulness of it. The pear tree scene became symbolic for Augustine because it represents our desire to choose nothingness itself, which is, in Augustine's way of knowing, the only rival to God. Book two of the Confessions opened with Augustine's asking God to heal his self-imposed alienation. Augustine begs God to recollect himself into a unified self, praying for the grace to give a coherent account of my disintegrated self. For when I turned away from you, the one God, and pursued a multitude of things, I went to pieces. Patsy Klein, unquote. <laughs> Recalling the pear tree, Thus occasions Augustine's thinking on the meta-narrative of disintegration itself. This is a maliciousness capturing all other malice, the very essence of self-imposed destruction and annihilation. 
As he sees it, this is the human attempt to become one's own god. That is why after this narrative window of the pear tree, Augustine admits, next quote, all those who wander far away and set themselves up against you are imitating you, but in a perverse way, trying to simulate a crippled sort of freedom, attempting a shadowy parody of omnipotence. Instead of seeking to rely on the one true God, our sin tells us to become our own God. And in our waywardness, we flee from the God of communion and cohesion, preferring to set ourselves up as deities, teetering upon our own distortions of divinity. Deep down, we may know that we're not God, but at least at this moment, I'm in control, able to do what I want, as I want, with no demands upon me. Let us now turn to sin as false deification. This is something that is mainly unconscious for Augustine, but he locates all sin in it as a proud grasping of one's own omnipotence. After looking at this next point, sin is the misdirection of imitating an autonomy of divinity, we'll look at sin as establishing an alien God who demands our dissolution, all right? the divided will against itself. And think here of Augustine's famous prayer in the Confessions, grant me chastity, but not yet. Right? He'll never be happy. He wants to be chased, but not yet. And I think all of us can relate to that. I wake up every morning wanting to be an Olympic athlete, but I go ahead and have a pizza by 8 a.m. <laughs> as early as the De Vera Religione, which is the first thing Augustine wrote, the last thing Augustine wrote before ordination, Augustine saw what else, after all, is one seeking in all this but to be the one and only, if that were possible, to whom all things are subject in a perverse imitation, that is to say, of Almighty God. This explanation would stay constant through his life as a bishop and theologian. In sin, rational creatures, angels and men and women, ultimately seek a supremacy, which Augustine understands to be the desire to be like God gone awry. And we all do this, don't we? Very subtly, each of us sets ourselves up as the Almighty. How many of us driving down River Avenue have been aggressively passed and we think, that idiot, yeah, the roads are icy, that's not safe. Yet when we drive that very same speed, we think, hey, I'm in a hurry. It's okay, I'm in control. Or how many of us have ever been on a train or a bus annoyed by someone on his or her cell phone prattling aimlessly and loudly, but when we take the same call, it's because we have a very good reason, and I'll be real quick and quiet. Just last week, I was standing in the security line at the Philadelphia International Airport, and a man cut right in front of me, and my unrehearsed initial thought was, what a jerk. Yet when I've done this, and I admit I have, I'm all the while thinking, sorry, my plane's in 10 minutes. Or, I have just a quick question. This is the very heart of sin for Augustine. Our own self-idolization and twisting of reality that places me above all others. The justification of my own actions and the placing of my own self at the center of what I consider to be real. For Augustine, this is concupiscence. And he says this is the mark of original sin. That you and I are born in sin and the the mark of that is that we're thinking we're at the center of reality. And if you think about it, when a two-year-old wants to disappear, what does he do? Right? He's so self-centered, he figures he can't see you. There's no way you can see him. Right? <laughs> this is a good example. The irony is that Augustine knew that, in fact, we are made to be like God, made in the divine image and likeness, created to receive and appropriate the divine life, so as to become an eternal, joyful, perfectly loving, wise person. 
This was a promise God made to us in the Garden of Eden. It is the one promise, and Augustine's the first Christian to realize this. It's the one promise, then, that the devil could use to tempt us. Augustine being the first Christian writer to see this move. Genesis 3.5, right? And you will be like gods. Augustine's point is this. The one thing that we were made for that we didn't have was total deifying union with God. Satan couldn't have tempted us. Hey, look, you follow me. I'll give you, I'll give you a sweeter kiwi, better looking cheetahs, you know. This is Eden. We had everything. Augustine here calls Satan not a liar. Adam and Eve would have been brought into the divine life. We are made to be like gods, but on God's terms, not the devil's. It is the God-made man who alone can make men and women God. We are made to enter God's life through intimate participation and dependency, but we instead seek to become like the Almighty through our own strength and independence. Augustine often uses the scriptural question, O oh God, who is your equal? Wouldn't study be a lot easier if the divine trinity just zaps up into our heads like that? <laughs> oh God, who is your equal to preach against the human propensity to rival heaven? <clears throat> to become like God can be done rightly in Christ, through proper worship, way of life, and so on, or it can be attempted wrongly through one's own power. Commenting on the psalmist wonder who is like God here, Augustine begins by asking incredulously, human beings like God? Oh God, who is like you? Nothing. But as for me, says wretched Adam, and Adam is every one of us, look what became of me when I perversely tried to be like you. I'm reduced to crying out to you for my captivity. And how did I fall away from you? By seeking in a perverted way to be like you. And those you undergrads whose Latin is still on its way, remember, perversion means to twist downward, huh? that we have a choice at every moment for Augustine to twist upward or downward. That's why you read verse, right? Prose is straight ahead, verse is turning. The perversion is a turn downward. We fall back into ourselves when we seek divinity wrongly. The perversion Augustine sees in our futile attempts at self-beification is to become like God apart from God, to become ourselves, our truest selves, by ourselves. It is good and right that we desire to be like God. Aren't followers of Jesus told to be perfect just as your heavenly Father is perfect? But in our sinfulness, we find fault with God's way of fulfilling this promise through our humble receptivity, through our intimate entering into a relationship of love with him and our neighbor. So instead, we resort to our own self. We turn within and thereby set ourselves up as our own self-centered and localized deities. When we debase and so replace God, we also debase and divide ourselves. When we become alienated from the source of our desires, we become alienated against ourselves, dehumanized, resulting in sorrow and malice. Understanding sinfulness in this way was an important move when Augustine left the Manichees. And Manichaeism, remember, was a dualistic spirituality. There was a good God and an evil God, and we couldn't help but be a combination of those two warring deities. Before Augustine came to see evil not as a separate and active entity, but as a matter of the fallen will, he was unable to accept how imperfect existence could still enjoy a place in the kingdom of the all-good God. Moving out of Manichaeism, he came to see sin no longer as the battle between two distinct camps, but as a civil war with wayward children trying to run away from their ever-loving father. During those years when he thought of the cosmos dualistically, a good God and a bad God, 
deficiency could have no room in the kingdom of goodness. Augustine disallowed the divine to draw near to his brokenness. And inevitably, the dualist becomes the harsh rigorist, right? Whose good God cannot bear to be in the presence of inferiority. And we see the exact opposite. That's what the cross is all about. That God chases us more in our brokenness than in our holiness. But what Augustine failed to see at this time in his life is that even in choosing to act outside himself in creating, God has already invited a lesser order of being to be in relationship with him. Refusal to confess God's unmatched love and openness for the sinful begins the idolization and inevitable destruction of the created self. A self who judges its divine union too unattainable, its salvation too alien. As we read in Confession 7, where Augustine is looking back at the follies of Manichaeism on the eve of his conversion, quote, there is no wholesomeness for those who find fault with anything you have created, as there was none for me when many of the things you have made displeased me. My soul did not dare to find my God displeasing. It was unwilling to admit that anything that displeased it was true. <coughs> this was why it had strayed away into believing in the duality of substances. But there it found no rest, and only mouthed the opinions of others. And stop and think what he's saying here. If I can't have a God who can love me in my sinfulness and in my brokenness, what I inevitably do is establish a good God who loves the nice things on my spiritual CV and my homepage that I'm proud to tell everybody, and an evil God who, you know, I don't talk to that God about this stuff, and I kind of leave it over here. And usually that evil God becomes me. Turning back again, the soul here. It had made for itself a God extended through infinite space all pervasive, and had thought this God was you, and had set him up in its heart. So it became yet again a temple for its own idol, and an abomination in your sight. Augustine has not yet learned that love is audaciously greater than imperfection. Out of a certain type of misplaced piety, he safely disentangles realities into two stories. As James Wetzel, philosopher at uh, Illinois, writes, the terrifying prospect of Augustine's confessional logic is that love is an all-or-nothing affair. Either we love someone well and therefore in God, or we love a fiction of our own interior poverty, a desperate projection of sin. Apart from God, in other words, we never get outside the fiction we take to be the self. So what Wetzel is saying here is that either we love everyone in God and therefore eternally and well, or we live simply, we love simply a figment of our own neediness, our own, uh, our own clinginess, our own desire to be loved. <clears throat> As such, there can be no cohesion, no unity, no one narrative to our life story, and therefore no salvation. Augustine is unwilling to let God be present in his brokenness and divided interiority. He's unwilling to admit that the divine longs to enter the darkness. Augustine therefore searches out a deity who's alienated from all that is, a god of reproach and resentment kind of the evil God over here. He's not yet come to the embodiment and the passion of a God who becomes sin out of love for others, 1 Corinthians 5.20. The younger Augustine's response, therefore, is to mimic the Manichaean dualism by setting up another divinity who is a temple for its own idol and <coughs> abomination. Augustine still resists unveiling the God of the creeds refusing to allow love to claim him as he is in all his brokenness and fear. In the words of David Bakken, 
Augustine reproaches himself for everything except his self-reproach. That is, he holds on to his melancholy and the bitter gall of self-loathing. And he wasn't even Irish. I just want to point that out. <laughs> he refuses to relinquish control of all that which he believed could not be received by the good, one good God, and therefore sequesters and sets up an idolatrous palace of worship within his own heart. And here he becomes divided. Divided between a God whom he dare not admit is anything other than purity, unable to admit the imperfect into the presence, and an evil extension of his own fallenness, which he forces to receive only disobedience and decay. Now there is an object to tear down, Augustine's own false divinity, his own God whom he has created by refusing to offer all to the Father who pursues his wayward children precisely in the restlessness. Think of the prodigal son. Accordingly, Augustine cannot help but imagine himself as being unworthy of acceptance and forgiveness, the exact sort of person that must be destroyed. So to explore how this destruction takes place, let's go to the third part. To explore two points. False deification as the interiorization of reality, and narcissism and the proper love of self. Right? Augustine really, really Augustine's probably the first He's the first critic in the West of the selfie. And I think you'll find out why. Right. Augustine explains the establishing of a false creator in the De Trinitate, his work on the Trinity. And for those of you who have an incomplete from last semester, this took him 16 years to finish. So <laughs> hurry up. This, the etiology of sin estimates how the creature tries to be more than is ontologically possible. One strains to become a god not by participation, but by possession. Find the delight not by loving all things in God, but by sequestering them for myself. And here's the quote I have in mind. What happens is that the soul, loving its own power, slides away from the whole, which is common to all, all of us, into the part which is its own private property. By following God's directions and being perfectly governed by his laws, it could enjoy the whole universe of creation. But by the apostasy of pride, which is called the beginning of sin, it strives to grab something more than the whole and to govern it by its own laws. Because there is nothing more than the whole, of course, it is thrust back into anxiety over a part. And so by being greedy for more, it gets less. I think an example of this in all of our lives is when we're doing something bad and think, well, who am I hurting? Right? Just this once. We interiorize a reality that we wouldn't normally hold, but when it's convenient, we say, we make up all excuses, you know? Compared to Dr. Banster, I'm practically a And so it, the soul, finds delight in bodily shapes and movements, and because it has got them with it inside, it wraps itself in their images. Remember, we're made to be like God, but we can wrap ourselves in our, in our addresses and our financial statements, however. We wrap ourselves in their images, which it has first fixed in the memory. In this way, it defiles itself foully with a fanciful sort of fornication. Such a sinful soul pits itself not in God, but against him. It finds delight only in that which it can control and place within itself, apart from the demands of a community. Or as Augustine warned the Carthaginian catechumen, Honoratus, in about 411 or 412, the baptized must seek not their own interests, not pursuing private advantages, but looking out for what is common and which has found the well-being of all. 
The eminent Augustine scholar Robert Marcus argues that as Augustine seasoned as a pastor, he came to understand pride more communally. Marcus maintains that after the year 400, so Augustine's ordained bishop in 395, it takes about five years, he focused on pride more as a sin against the social well-being of God's creatures. Here's what Marcus says. It's really good. Augustine's thought in his 50s began to be dominated by the notion that the roots of sin lie in self's retreat into a privacy which is deprivation. The self is deprived of community. All community with God, one's fellows, and even one's own self is fatally ruptured by sin. The radical flaw in human nature is now transcribed in terms of a retreat into a closed-off self. This retreat into a closed-off self signifies a more mature understanding of that innate desire to be like God. Now explained is the dismissal of true reality and the running away into my own self at the cost of communion and other-centered intimacy. Seductive and idolatrous, a fictional reality woos Augustine inward. He turns from God and neighbor, rejecting the very ability to reject, hating the very one who alone can keep him from hating. And is this not the opening line documented in almost every domestic abuse file? Isolation comes before destruction. The abuser first controls and cuts off the abused, often isolating her from her friends and family, her passions and her heart's desires. The abuser alleges that he alone should be enough, that only he understands her and can thereby determine the reality in which she will now live. Psychic isolation almost always leads to ontological destruction. Seeing this helped me to understand why the internal alienation of the self, Augustine just worked out in Book 12 of De Trinitate, leads to questions of self-love and ruin in Book 14. So remember, he's talking about trying to get your God inward, isolating yourself from the rest of God and neighbor. And then this argument. So the one who knows how to love himself loves God. And the man who does not love God, even though he loves himself, which is innate in him by nature, can still be said quite reasonably to hate himself when he does what is against his own interest and stalks himself as if he were his own enemy. See what Augustine said? If you don't love God and you say you only love yourself, you're really stalking yourself. You're really going to destroy yourself. It is indeed a dreadful derangement that while everyone wants to do himself good, many people do nothing but what is absolutely destructive of themselves. The poet, Virgil, describes a disease of the sort that afflicts dumb animals. Ye gods, for pious men a better lot, this wild derangement for your foes preserve, their own limbs with unsheathed teeth they tore. I agree. Makes you wonder what a sheathed tooth is. <laughs> we tear at ourselves when we sense these idols within us. Out of our illusory need to control, we set them up. And in our incessant restlessness, we tear them down, knowing they will never bring the true rest we seek. And why do we do it? When I turn away from beauty, I can feel better about my own followers. When I reject the good around and in me, my own evil goes unchallenged. In its embrace, love shines a redeeming light upon the beloved. And if I can't stand that light, I must extinguish it. And this is the verdict. That the light came into the world, the people preferred darkness to light because their works were evil. Augustine situates his analysis of self-destruction in a larger question of proper self-love. 
Those who love themselves wrongly actually hate themselves. And hence, with unsheathed teeth, they rip themselves apart. Augustine's the first in Christianity to notice that there are only two commandments, to love God and love your neighbor. Why? Because you inevitably love yourself. You can't help but love yourself. But you can love yourself wrongly. That's the point here. And it is, of course, the mythical figure Narcissus who epitomized this question of self-love. You know the story of Narcissus, right? The story opens with an adoring nymph named Echo who pursues the beautiful nymph and youth, but Narcissus seeks to flee her fawning repetition of his voice. Who's there? Who's there? Intent on removing himself from such fulsome praise, Narcissus runs out of the glen, insisting, may I die before what, mine is your, what is mine is yours, with Echo in pursuit only able to repeat, what is mine is yours. Frustrating, isn't it? <laughs> Infuriated by his rejection of the nymph Echo, the goddess of revenge, Nemesis, lures Narcissus to a shiny brook where he takes up his own self-reflection, thus becoming so fixated with his countenance that paralyzed by love, he literally sprouts riparian roots and dies where the beautiful flower grows today. Now, most of us think of Narcissus as someone who's so full of himself he falls in love with himself. But notice how he got to the brook. He ran away from relationship. So, in the 1970s, there was an Austrian psychoanalyst, Heinz Koten, who inaugurated a subversive reading of this cautionary tale against self-love. What Kohu began was a way of reading the story, not of one's self-inflation, but of one's depletion. Described by Kohu to subtly experience yet pervasive feelings of emptiness and depression. According to Kohu, narcissism is caused not by an overemphasis <coughs> of one's worth, but by a lack or refusal of external validation. Narcissus enters infamy because he's unwilling to enter into relationship with Echo. He is cold and indifferent to the warmth of another. He dies not out of self-assuredness, but out of insecurity and an unwillingness to be received vulnerably by the other. In his 1979 book, The Culture of Narcissism, the American social critic, Christopher Lash, followed Kohu's insight to show how a narcissistic personality is manifested by these four qualities. One, an unwillingness to be received or claimed by the other. Two, a need to manipulate others in order to keep the impressions they have of us unspoiled. Three, an inordinately shallow emotional life. What's up? <laughs> and fear, and four, a fear of one's own finitude and personal limitations. Understood this way, narcissism is not cocky self-assuredness, but a shallow emptiness which inevitably leads to our own self-aggrandizement. For where we reject the transformative love of another, we must set it up for ourselves. To avoid this kind of self-division and destruction, we must therefore learn to love ourselves rightly. And for Augustine, this means ordering our love appropriately. The ordo amoris, the order of love for Augustine, is realizing how even though the love of neighbor and self may be chronologically and emotionally prior, I think that's an important point for Augustine. It's okay to have more emotion over holding your grandchild than holding the Eucharist, for example. Right? It's okay to have a chronological and emotionally prior love as long as you know love of God is ontologically and authoritatively prior. By definition, then, love is never in competition with love, right? We all can do this, right? It's good to remember that we're all the boss's kid, right? 
You like getting good at the boss, you spoil the kid. But for this cohesion to occur, the proper order of love must occur. One's love of God must be the defining and unifying end by which all other loves are judged. The Bishop of Hippo can therefore preach that the only way to love oneself is to first love God with one's whole self. Love the Lord, and in so doing, learn how to love yourselves. So that when by loving the Lord, you genuinely love yourselves. Those who set out to love themselves actually end up hating themselves. That is how, in some inexplicable way, whoever loves himself and not God does not actually love him or herself. And whoever loves God and not himself does in fact love himself. For the one who is not able to live from himself, that's a tough one, non plotters vivere they say, the one who's not able to live from his own being perishes by loving himself. For the one who loves himself in such a way that he does not really live by himself, does not actually love himself. But when God, from whom this one is given life, is loved, by not loving himself, he who does not love himself, precisely that he may love him from whom he has life, loves himself all the more. Okay? It took me about four years to translate that passage. <laughs> this proves to be one of the naughtier passages of Augustine's Latin. So I've inserted shock quotes in my translation. But clearly the term amor, love, is employed equivocally here. It's not the same. Augustine thinks that a person, divine, angelic, or human, cannot not love. We by nature automatically love. For persons, not loving is never an option. What we do wrongly often, and this amounts to actually hating oneself, is to love wrongly. We love ourselves in a hateful manner when we make ourselves the direct object of our love. This paragraph came to me when I was at some friends once, and they have a bunch of little kids, and the dad was at his wit's end, and he grabbed one of the kids and he says, you will respect me. I thought, that's the last thing he's going to do. Right? If you insist on respect, you'll never get it. Respect, like love, is a byproduct of excellence. right? So if you set out to love yourself, it's not going to work. Love God, ah, now we understand what love is. By definition, love can never be solipsistic or self-referential. This was the essence of the first act of iniquity and the heart of sin all since. Commenting on the devil's fall, Augustine contends that, quote, a twisted love of self deprives that swollen, puffed-up spirit of holy companions and confines him so eager to save himself through wickedness in an ever-hungry wretchedness. A perverse love of self turns the lover within, whereas rightly ordered charity is the realization of relationship through which we meet love himself and through whom we now are able to love neighbor and self rightly. You love yourself only because you love God with your whole self. Augustine was a mama's boy. <laughs> Alone, the self is not only sterile, but destructive. The created soul is made to be an intimate and deifying communion with the one outside of itself. Yet in its fallen and fearful need to control, it turns away within. Augustine therefore advises, Put no trust in yourself, but only in God. If you trust in yourself, your soul will be turned towards yourself, never perversion, and gravely troubled, because it cannot yet find any grounds for security in you. So that if my soul turned toward myself and found itself disturbed, what is left to me but humility, the humble refusal of the soul to place any reliance on itself? There's something really pagan about the phrase, believe in yourself. You know? For Augustine, to avoid such self-destruction means to love oneself rightly. 
And this occurs when I refuse to set myself up as the direct recipient of my love, but to see true charity as first demanding my love of God, from whom and in whom I can love all else. But I can avoid destroying myself only by loving the origin and source of all my loves. Let us now turn briefly to the fourth and final section. Here I simply want to show how Augustine's explained our life's fulfillment as relationship. Preaching on the feast day of a Christian martyr, probably around 391, right, his first Christmas as a priest, Augustine announces to the congregation that the martyrs were men and women who, like all of us, began by thinking they could live this life in their own power. But brought low by God's grace, they came to see that true Christian denial did not mean hating themselves, but allowing Christ to live their lives within them. Denial for the Christian never means dismissal, but dependency. These are the martyrs. Huh? They had also come to themselves and observed themselves. They found themselves in themselves, and they didn't like themselves. They hurried off to the one by whom they could be refashioned, in whom they could come to life again, in whom they could remain, in whom what they had begun to be by themselves would perish, and only that would remain which he had established in them. That is what denying oneself means. To deny oneself is to no longer live as a self, but as a we. Galatians 2, 19 to 20, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, that we're made for this kind of relationship, right? As Augustine sees things, to be wholly fulfilled, a human person must always live, always and everywhere, relationally, nuptially, as a member of the body of Christ, a temple in whom the Holy Spirit personally dwells. Long for Christ's friendship, and you will be safe. He wants to be your guest. Make a place for him. What do I mean by telling you to make a place for him? Do not love yourself, but love him. If you are in love with yourself, narcissist, you shut the door in his face. But if you are in love with him, you open it to him. And if you open it, he comes in. And you will no longer be in danger of being lost through self-love. When he loves you, you will be found. Love, like all the other great goods of our Christian tradition, friends, remains ever elusive if sought directly. Love is always the byproduct of excellence. We love ourselves rightly only when we love God first. And in so doing, we overcome Augustine's early Manichaean fears, allowing love to draw near to our imperfections, allowing love to approach and mend our divided hearts. Placing another at the center of our lives means relinquishing control, and less allowing ourselves to be vulnerable. Remember that Latin word, vulnerable is a wound in Latin, so vulnerable, able to be wounded. And nobody does that better than our own pipe-smoking Lewis. <laughs> to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything in your heart will certainly be wrong and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in a casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, your heart, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. It's the only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. Augustine never uses vulnerability costs in this manner. But like narcissists, 
The one who refuses to be vulnerable refuses to open up to another. So although I may choose my own destruction, at least it's mine. I find riskiness, relationship too risky. Commenting on Psalm 103-104, that the Lord has clothed himself in majesty and splendor. Augustine contrasts our ugliness with God's beauty. In rather erotic language, he preaches how in our isolation we are really craving to be noticed, embraced, and even kissed. After all, 18. Christ the bridegroom, he says, has bedewed his lips, Psalm 45. And he waits to offer us the kiss of life. But focusing on our sinfulness impedes our freedom to let Christ kiss us. We know we are unworthy of such eternal embrace, but we choose to stay isolated in our ugliness. This impasse is broken by the incarnation. Quote, First of all, you must find your deformity displeasing, and then you will receive beauty from him whom you hope <coughs> to please by being beautiful. He who formed you in the beginning will reform you. If in your ugly condition you find yourself repulsive, you are already pleasing to your beautiful bridegroom. What are you to do? Since your ugliness is offensive even to yourself, your first step must be to approach him by confession, by praise. Begin by admitting your ugliness, the deformity of soul that results from sins and iniquity. Initiate your confession by accusing yourself of this ugliness. For as you confess, you become more seemly, more beautiful. And who grants this to you? Who else but he who is fairer than any of humankind? For Augustine, healing begins with the proper use of words. Like the therapist, Dr. Stephen Levincron, in his book Cutting, Understanding and Overcoming Self-Mutilation, who advises a patient that, quote, maybe you need words instead of blades or knives. Confessius takes us into a deeper understanding of who we are. Wounded and errant, yes, but even more true, beloved and beautiful, made for eternal communion. <clears throat> This is why Augustine holds up the mortal Christ as our mirror. The lowliness of the perfect God made human is the one who best reflects the human condition. Beholding the blood of our wounds on the blood of the cross, seeing our scars in Christ's own hands and side, heals those places where we feel unworthy of love. By no longer dwelling on our own ugliness, but offering it to the beautiful Christ standing before us, clothed in perfect beauty, we too become beautiful and glorious to behold. And it is typical of Augustine, the pastor, to look for ways to use the heart's lovesickness and various failures to goad each of us to loving Christ. Father Tom Martin of Happy Memory. The cry becomes an essential step on the road to liberation, a cry based in true self-recognition, dramatically opposed to haughty self-deception. Confession to Christ breaks us out of our self-imposed alienation and consequent loathing. For only Christ is able to offer the peace we seek, and only his emptiness can empty us of ourselves. Relinquishing that familiar self-love, which keeps us at the center of our lives, demands our trust. And as the psalmist worried, perhaps the darkness will overwhelm me. But Augustine comments on the psalm, the night has proved to be light for me. Because in the night of my despair, of even having the strength to cross the vast sea or sustain so long a flight, or to reach the furthest shore by persevering to the end, he sought me out and found me as I fled. <clears throat> Thanks be to him who struck at my fleeing back with his whip and called me and pulled me away from disaster, and so made my night radiant. Hell in heaven. Conclusion. 
When examining a relatively harmless offense of his teenage years, Augustine admits that this deed of stealing the pears remains worthy of confession because it was as close to the abyss of nothingness that one could wander. He sought to destroy himself because at least he was the one doing it. Such ruin attracts our fallen souls because now the demands of external goodness are dismissed. The riskiness of relationship is relinquished. But once in the light, the converted Augustine came to see that what he was choosing was not the beauty of the pears, but was instead choosing his own self as the source of his security. Augustine, not the pears, had become the idol, which now had to be shattered. Augustine's intention in stealing the pears was never to satisfy his physical hunger, but to deepen the crevice of self-loathing that he already fractured his heart. Still unwilling to confess that God has calibrated his divine beauty to Augustine's brokenness, our searcher refused to place himself in God's pierced hands. He instead relished his own decay and sweetened it all the more through senseless acts of ruin. But through this self-imposed alienation, God continued to call and call more loudly. Augustine's psychology of sin reveals the depths of the double-minded soul. In sin, we are alienated against our own selves because we are both drawn to and repulsed by goodness. Augustine is clearly no longer a mannequin who abhors all visible creation. As a Christian, he sees all the more clearly the beauty of everything that meets his senses. But as a sinner, he's also disgusted by anything that demands his allegiance. He wants to embrace the other, but he must first seek what that is rightly. And this is the risk of relationship, of allowing ourselves to be <coughs> healed and loved. And only here can we cease to ravish our ruin and allow our ruin to be ravished by the one who alone can give us true rest. Thank you. Here's where the Hope College Jesuit thing converges. A great line from Gerard Manley Hopkins, my own heart let me have more pity on. Let me live to my sad self hereafter time. Terrible, not live this tormented mind. This tormented mind, tormented mind. Isn't that beautiful? So, anyway, thank you. Uh, disagreements, questions, comments? About 10 minutes for questions. Please, sir. So, what would you do, like, when, when St. Austin was around, like, what was he like? <laughs> he did not sleep much. He was a very <laughs> zealous soul. He was a true pastor who knew his people. We know he calls them by name, he knows their occupation. I think he really lived a life of gratitude, knowing that his life could have gone elsewhere. Mm. I think gratitude was probably his greatest uh, charism. Oh. Yeah. Thanks. That's a good question. Please. Did he have a drinking problem? He never, his, his mom did. If you remember in the Confessions Book 9, uh, Monica recalls a story in which a house girl caught her sneaking wine, and that having someone of such lower class, a vulga, a vulga is the lowest maid in that Roman home, <clears throat> the word vulgate, the lowest kind of Latin, um, being reprimanded by her, chased uh, Monica's drinking away. But, I mean, he talks about having nightly wine put away for Lent, of course, and but he never seems to let on to a problem. I think his overarching problem was one of honor and pride that manifested itself most famously in terms of lust. He could get any girl he wanted, but even there, given fourth century parallels, he's fairly virtuous. Do you, or do you have a passage in mind where he drinks too much? No. Okay. I didn't know if that was pointed. I grew up on a winery, so I didn't know if that was a pointed question. <laughs> <laughs>
or directions of sin, or one to say I would be God, and the other to say I would be a beast. Oh, really? This is obviously the God side of it. Do you see the beast side of it also, Augustine? What do you mean? But what do you mean by the beast? I mean the beast. I don't know. Just one who follows your own instincts. Yeah, I think that's what he's getting. And when you do that, you realize what beasts do is they tear themselves with unsheathed teeth. So I would think this is the beast side, but the God side is this notion of true deification, becoming like God through participation and allowing God's qualities to shine through us. That's option A. Option B is, yeah, destroying yourself through sin and bad habit and faulty thinking. That's the beast side. So I like that. I'll find that quote. Nietzsche said, if there were gods, how could we not stand to be one? That same kind of thing. So you're either going to be a god rightly or wrongly. I think that's the whole point of the Western tradition. Yeah, you said um, that uh, respect and love are both byproducts of excellence. Um, but like, for example, our parents or our professors and our elders, uh, we're supposed to respect and love them even though they're not perfect. Right. So the, how does that fit into your definition if like a parent fails to live up to the respect they deserve in an ideal sense? I guess maybe by excellence there, what I meant was first love God. That's the excellent. If you love Augustine's point is this, you can't just set out to respect or love your teachers. Because the second you do that, your teachers are going to start having to go to Jimmy John's forum. Right? They're, going to, they're going to do things that are against what a teacher does. If you love God rightly, and God is the mark and measure by which you love all others, then there's, love doesn't have to compete against itself. So what I meant by that, I guess you respect and love your parents best, excellently, only by loving and respecting God first. Does that make sense? Yeah. Thank you. Um, from a pastoral perspective, you have somebody who says, uh, you're asking me to love God and to get into this restorative Christian community when it's in fact the people who claim they love God and this restorative Christian community that gave me uh, the life that I have. I don't want anything to do with that. Yeah, it is amazing. Any of us who do pastoral work, we hear that a lot. You know, this is my life, and I guess I deserve it because God wants me. You know, you hear that I've, I've dealt with abuse people who say that. Well, this must be what I deserve. If I were only different, I wouldn't have this. And I think no, 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 no. The reason you're thinking like this, or the reason you you've kept the bar so low, is you can't imagine the love and the glory God has for you that you don't deserve this. And oftentimes, what I do, especially with pious Christians, not everything that happens in our life is God's will. But all things are God's invitation to love Him more. But some things are against God's will, and we need to get rid of those. And that's harder than just, it's hard to do when you don't provide people the means by which to do it. But I think theologically that's a fairly common and I think easily remedied thing that God wills only goodness and communion for you. And when you find destruction and dissolution, get out. It's not God's will. Right. Please. So it strikes me in my reading of Augustine that he's. He's always very communal. That he's with the friends when he steals the bear. Yeah, he's never alone, that's true. He, he, I mean, he always is in community, and I, I find him very dependent. Dependent on his mother, dependent on uh, people in the rhetoric community. I mean, it seems to me there's a lot of dependence. And so I wonder if, if there's a way he sorts out what kind of community you need. You need communion with God. Oh, good. Then what kind of human community 
is going to be restorative or worthy of uh, a love of God. I, I don't know. It's, it strikes me that he must be in search for a yeah. certain type of community. Never thought of it this way, but the first time he rejects a community is when he leaves the Manichees, and he does that primarily because he meets Bishop Faustus, who's supposed to have all the answers, is he can't wait to meet Faustus, and he gets it, and the guy's a dollar. And he realizes that that community is held together, he says at one point, more by fear and lies. So maybe the search for truth and the fact that he can um, that he can question without being condemned, I think that was an important part of his search. So community for him was a place where there's a certain, there's a certain plasticity that he could be himself and give and take and didn't have to worry about only authority or myths. So faith and reason, I would say. Probably the first example we get where Augustine dismisses a community that he knew wouldn't bring his flourishing. I thought of that. Is that? Yeah. Well, you're the boss, right? Make sure I get this one. Out. <laughs> 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 I wish I had it. No? Yes. Well, if God was born and raised in the Middle Ages, why does he allow so much difficulty to occur there now? Ah, a sign of contradiction. <coughs> I spent Christmas in Bethlehem. I've never had a scarier bus ride in my life. Palestinians, Jews, everybody gets on with their machine guns and checks your pat. It's, yeah, I mean, yeah. It's Mary's Magnificat. You know, this baby's about to be born, and she starts talking about societies being upturned, and the poor getting rich, and the hungry getting filled, and the going empty it's so my answer is I don't know but it certainly is obvious that the place where Christ is supposed to be the place where Christ should be worshipped the most he's a he's distant and I, not to get too pastoral but isn't that true in all of our lives the people we should, should love the most are the people we're hardest on we can always impress our bosses and our professors but when we come home we can be demons I remember when I was young, my mom once asked me, can I ask you a question? I said, she goes, why do you mow everyone in lawn, everyone in town's lawn better than our own? <laughs> I'm like, well, they pay me, mom. <laughs> but Bethlehem is like that. The place where Christ should be honored the most is the most, yeah, it was, it was a dangerous, ugly place. So, But I don't know. I guess the Lord will work it out in his, in his time with our hope. Well, thank you. It's an honor to be back here 30 years later. I started this paper for Dr. Manser in 84. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't we pray as children united in communion, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen.